0: From a secret location not far from Nice Guy Productions' world headquarters, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. In fact, this will be the final one-on-one postmortem interview before we close the show with our live spectacular We Are Recording at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood next week. It's been an amazing seven-year run of conversations that will stick with me for the rest of my life. The generosity and creativity of all of our guests has been expansive and remarkable. Our final guest is one of the most influential filmmakers ever to hit Hollywood. A Southern Californian who has created a resume of movies so distinctive that they've become a subgenre of their own and so influential that many imitators strive to be called Tarantino-esque, Quentin Tarantino has always done it his way. His movies, filled with revelatory performances from actors familiar and otherwise, dialogue that seems shot from a Gatling gun, and a pace that never lets you go, are not just love letters to Hollywood, but are so personal and contemporary that they cannot be mistaken for another director's work. But there's so much more to Quentin than his work as a screenwriter and director. His books and his amazing podcast with Roger Avery video archives are filled with just as much excitement and creativity as his movies. I can't think of a better guest to sum up our collection of over 180 interviews than Quentin Tarantino.
1: Quentin, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's so great to be here. I mean, I, uh, like, I think your podcast has been the uh, um. Yeah, you know, I think the benchmark for appreciating and interviewing genre directors. Oh,
0: thank you so much. Yeah, and
1: then so uh, uh, it's about time you had me on here.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we've been trying. We've been trying. You're yes, a busy yes, man. Yes, yes, you have. Yes, You're you have. a busy man. But one of the one of the great things about your work, um, you've t- kind of tidied up. What your life's involvement with movies is in your mo- in your book, Cinema mm-hmm. Speculations. Mm-hmm. I love this book. Pauline kale had I lost it at the movies, which was her personal introduction of how yeah. movies changed their life. Yours is so much more fervid and <laughs> passionate and personal and uncensored, and I just mm-hmm. love that about it. You're you're a, a Southern California native from the South Bay, yeah. and your dad wanted to be an actor. Your biological dad yeah, yeah. wanted to be an actor, but you never really knew him. You yeah. you were you had a stepfather, Kurt.
1: Yeah, who was you? Know, who was my father, as far as I was concerned?
0: Yeah. Right, and he had a passion for movies, as did your
1: mother. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, I mean, one of the things um, like growing up with uh, 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 Kurt and my mom. Well, they were very young. Like my mom was. At least sixteen when she had me. She might have even been younger. Wow. All right, uh, yeah. we don't talk about that. Right. But uh, uh, <laughs> okay. but you know they were you know uh, uh, you know she was a nurse and uh, he was a piano bar musician. So they didn't have that much money. So you know going out to the movies was like one of the things that they could do. Right. You know? And right. you know and they and they took me out with them. Um, but one of the things about. Being with Kurt is because he was a piano bar musician before I started going to school. You know, which was around. Um, yeah, you know, I don't think we. I started like nursery school until around uh, like four, right, or something like that. Uh, uh, and you know, so so before then, I'm just at home. Well, Kurt's taking care of me all day long because he's a piano bar musician. So he works right. at night, and then he, you know, when my mom's at work at the hospital, he gets to take care of me during the day. And you know, so we'd watch. TV, and uh, so some old movie would be on on TV, and say Thomas Mitchell is in the movie. Right. Yeah. You know, so we're watching the movie, and the Thomas Mitchell's in there. And goes oh. Oh, Quentin. See that's Thomas Mitchell. He. It uh, was a good character actor. He's in a lot of movies, but he played the father in the original swiss family robinson you know the one the one we saw yeah i remember the one yeah i saw the disney one well they did they did another version of it in the 30s and he was the father in that oh really oh that's interesting huh and i'm trying to imagine him starring in the john mills one that i saw right and uh and then it would be something else he'd be uh watching things like oh roddy mcdowell i really really like him especially when he plays assholes you know or or, or, or lee marvin but but you but but like that Thomas Mitchell example, he would pick out some little example like that, a film history about whatever it is I was watching.
0: So he had knowledge of well, here's Well,
1: that's the punchline of the story, all right? Because the thing about it, you know, you, you, you know a bad guy shows up, a uh, famous character actor playing back, oh, that's so-and-so. Oh, that's Jack Palance, you know? Or right. that's, that's Royal Dano, you know? Uh, he'd point out stuff like that. Okay, so, yes, he had knowledge. He didn't really have vastly amounts more knowledge than a lot of other adults did at that time. He just knew a bunch of actors. Right, right. He knew a bunch of actors. A lot of people knew who character actors were, especially back then. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, they grew up with them. And, uh, okay, but now, I, as a little boy, think Kurt is a movie expert. (laughs) 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 I mean, and I'm thinking... Oh my gosh, this is so wonderful. Uh, so, So this is what it's like to be an adult? You watch a movie and you know the name of every actor in it? You watch a movie, not only do you know the name of every actor in it, you know their whole filmography. You can describe <laughs> their career. Yeah. Oh my God, I can't wait to be an adult where I could like know this. Well, so I guess I better start right now. I better start like learning my shit, you know, so, wow. I, uh, so I know it when I get to be an adult. Well, okay, so then I start accumulating my knowledge as a child and I... Uh, I get to a certain point and then I realize, no, Kurt wasn't a movie expert. He was just a, like an adult who liked movies and knew the names of a, of a, of a bunch of actors like a lot of people do. <laughs> right, but you were I now <laughs> am a movie
0: expert. <laughs> You're a celluloid sponge. Yes. You absorbed everything about the film world because you knew there was more to movies. You want, you set out to be an actor. Yeah.
1: I mean, I can't even, uh, what I just described, it was the first time I've described it that way and I was just hearing myself describing it. I mean, the idea of watching. A movie and not knowing the name of all the actors and not knowing their entire filmography. I don't even know what that would be like. All right? this is like you know, when I watch a Bollywood movie or when I watch right. a, a you know, a, a movie from uh, uh uh Pakistan or something like that. Okay, okay, that's a movie. All right, I don't know anybody. I don't know what's going on.
0: <laughs> but that's the thing about movies and you is it doesn't matter the genre. Mm-hmm. Your passion is all encompassing. The the world of film is like celluloid in your veins. <laughs>
1: yeah, it is.
0: And, well, it's and been for
1: a long time, yeah.
0: Yeah, what is it about movies that gives you so much joy, the, the medium of film itself?
1: Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I'm not 100% sure, all right, uh, how to answer that question, that director question per se. All I know is just as a little boy, because it all started when I was a, a kid. And it's just as a, as a little kid, you're either drawn to this thing or you're drawn to that thing. Some kids are drawn to sports. Uh, kids are drawn to football. Some kids are drawn to drawing. There's right. oh, a kid in the back. Some kids are drawn to cars. They read car magazines. If they're going to doodle, they, they draw cars. They make car models. All right. uh, uh, other kids are uh, into oh, yeah, oh, whatever they're into. All right. Um, movies were always my thing. Right you know movies were all you know I, You know, there's that other kid that like it reads history all the time it reads mm-hmm. uh, uh books all the time he's always reading a book i was always uh, something there's something about movies movies always uh were it for me and i think why i don't know all right but the environment that i learned them in the late In the late late 60s early 70s when i'm like really introduced to them in a in a big way i think had something to do with it because you have a combination of new hollywood cinema which i think is arguably the greatest cinema ever produced in the history of hollywood so i'm seeing that as it's happening right now like i watch a new hollywood movie at at six or seven or eight that's my idea of a movie these are movies right i'm learning what a movie is by watching joe Right. I'm learning what a movie is by watching Where's Papa?
0: Right. And this is. Or Man
1: Called Horse or or something. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And this is in the wake of Easy Rider, where all of the studio executives Mm -hmm. realized they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. They put it in the hands of exciting, young, experimental directors.
1: But on the other side of that, you also had a very vibrant local television uh, uh, experience with all the local TV stations playing all their movies. The Channel Nine million dollar movie
0: every uh, night to, of the week. Yeah, yeah. KTT,
1: uh, uh, KTTV's Movie Greats. Where they had yeah. all the MGM ones, all the classic movies. I learned who most of the big classic stars were. You know, uh, like from watching Movie Greats. You know, and all the you know, and all the Marx Brothers movies, and the Laurel and Hardy movies, and the Edmund Costello movies. That I uh, watched them all.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, so the combination of like learning about this classic cinema. So richly delivered, all right, by the local stations in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, and then the new Hollywood movies at the theaters that my parents were taking me to see. I mean, that was, you know, that's a pretty good cocktail for falling in love with movies.
0: Yeah, and it's a kind of parenting that isn't common where <laughs> yeah. they would bring you along to the R-rated or unrated right, movies yeah. and
1: all that. And it had
0: to have formed something in you that is with you today. And mm-hmm. as a parent mm-hmm. yourself, do you? have that, that desire to teach your children as they're growing up about the kind of history in film that you were exposed
1: to? Oh, well, of course. That's almost the reason to have a kid. <laughs> <laughs> do you think it's... it's like ch- it teaches them some of this shit that's running around in my brain. <laughs> All right, you know, it's something to do with it. Um, I mean, as it are... I mean, look, I mean, as it is like right right now, like for instance, like, okay, my son Leo is only like a... Uh, uh, three and a half um so he's still a little too young to sit down and watch a movie right from beginning to end right but he can watch like a full half hour cartoon now uh all right you know and and be into it from beginning to end and Uh. like and so i've also but so what i'm doing is is, yeah so of course he has the shows he has the, the stuff on YouTube and this and the 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 you know the the modern baby cartoon uh, he's getting more more better than baby cartoon stuff but you right. know uh but the toddler cartoon stuff that he likes so there's all that stuff that he likes and there's all the YouTube channels of kids playing with toys that he likes right right but I'm also showing him the Max Fletcher Superman cartoons nice. and he loves them. And the
0: I'm, 3D Popeye cartoons, yeah, yeah, with a yeah, multi-level yeah. Well, I haven't like, shown him that yet, okay. but
1: I've shown, you know, but like I've show, yeah, I, I've shown him like the '70s Super Friends, yeah. and I've shown him like the the Filmation uh, Batman cartoons and right. the Superman cartoons, and I showed him like the uh, and uh, uh, I've shown him the '60s Spider Man cartoons, and he he knows the song, he can sing the theme oh, song.
0: That's fantastic. All right, yeah,
1: you know, I, I I showed him the other day uh, 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 the '80s Rambo cartoon. Oh wow! All right, and he didn't seem like he liked it that much, but then he started referring to play he was saying he was playing rambo uh, he was playing with his figures he said no, i'm rambo but he doesn't know his name is rambo he thinks his name is rainbow <laughs> <laughs> He'll learn soon enough. Yeah. <laughs> but the uh, but even like with the figures I give up. I give up like you know a vintage uh, a Planet of the Apes figures. Yeah, I give him a uh, you know, uh, uh, vintage Godzilla and Rodan. He knows right. he knows the name of uh, Rodan. Yeah. He knows the name of Gamera. He knows Godzilla. Godzilla. Minus one is
0: pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, have you seen the new one? No, I've heard about it. I've heard it's great. It's amazing. I'm mean, gonna probably see in the next like couple of days actually.
0: It's fantastic, mm. and I think you will really like it. But when did Renegade Cinema start to appeal? to you the the out of the mainstream stuff because oh yeah good question your your book focuses so much on how independent film that didn't originate in hollywood became such a big part of your
1: passion well you know it's interesting because uh um every once in a while they did but for the most yeah yeah but for the most part If my parents were taking me to see an exploitation movie, it was usually only like like the second film on the bill. Right, right. Or they picked an exploitation movie by accident. They didn't realize (laughs) it was quite as cheap as it was. But like, for instance, I remember one night in 1970 where we're figuring out what we're going to go see. They oh We almost went and saw The Losers. Oh, wow. How awesome would that have been <laughs> to see the losers with your parents when it opened? All right, Adam. When theater. you're nine years and old, and they just decided the last minute to go to something else, I mean, oh. that would have just been amazing. Uh, um, but when I started being able to go, but you know, once I got to be old enough, which was not that old. I mean, yeah. like ten or eleven. All right, maybe eleven. We'll say eleven. I think it was like around eleven when uh, my mom started just dropping me off at the theater
0: so the theater became your babysitter
1: yeah it's like and then i, I yeah and that wasn't like she wanted to get rid of me no that was my weekend that's what i wanted right, to do right. you know and uh uh and so she just dropped me off at the theater and so what i could kind of start doing going on my own now uh you know i'm seeing whatever like looks good on the tv spots that they're right. showing that week on tv or what looks good in the newspaper and so that's when I started discovering B-movies, and I started realizing, oh, okay, so, okay, these are cheaper than the Hollywood movies, and they look it, and they don't quite have the prestige of the Hollywood movies, and no, Paul Newman's not going to be in this, <laughs> and Elizabeth is not going to be in this, but some of these people who are here are pretty cool, but and and often and a lot of times they're not good, right? <laughs> uh, uh, um. But they might have a scene. They might have a moment, they might have a tone uh, that is contraband, that you're just not going to find in a Hollywood movie. And maybe they're going to go, they'll go too far as far as the violence is concerned, or too far as far as the sex is concerned, or too far as far as the sensation is concerned. Well, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go too far. (laughs) That's what I wanted to see. All right. I mean, it really is pretty much the equivalent of somebody listening to the Ramones. Right. When they first came out, as opposed to Holland and Oates. <laughs> yes. Uh, they're both, they have their value. They both have their value. <laughs> okay. They both have, they both have, they both have their place and they're both defined by the, their opposites of each other right. as far as the production values are concerned and the pleasures they offer. Right. And it's, the Ramones is very specific. It's very visceral. It, yeah. For what it is, but it is very visceral. And if you get it, you get it.
0: Right. Right, and the Ramones. Seeing them in concert yeah. was one of the great memories in yeah. Rock and Roll High School right. and all yeah. that. Just just great stuff. But it also feels like this renegade cinema is embracing something that you wouldn't want your parents to embrace. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, explain that. Uh, to, to break away, to be, I'm my own person. Mm-hmm. I love this thing. My mom's going to hate this music because it's loud and abrasive, and that's a really good reason to take it on. Well,
1: it's interesting, okay, because it wasn't like I was... Liking these movies, and they had a problem with me liking these movies or anything like that. Uh, 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 it was, except unless it was like a big hit, like a, a, a like a Halloween or something like right. that. It was. It was almost more the i uh, better way of saying it is. It's something that. I was experiencing through childhood and preteens and teenage years and even into my early early 20s completely all by myself. Right. I had nobody to share this with. It wasn't like I had a B movie buddy.
0: Right. That like right. Went,
1: it wasn't like I had a B movie kid that lived down the street who liked black exploitation movies too. I might trick a kid into going with me. <laughs> All right. And take them to a really sketchy part of town that they weren't used to going to. Right. All right. Uh, 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 but it's like, you know, so if I'm seeing the girl from Starship Venus or if I'm seeing a double feature of Axe and the Child or if I'm seeing a, 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 a Crater Lake monster and Land of the Minotaur. Together, there's nobody for me to talk to about. I just I, I watched it on my own. Yeah. I watched it on my own. It was an exp- I didn't know anybody in this fucking theater. All right. It was an experience I had completely to myself. I never shared it with anybody. There was what am I gonna talk about the Crater Lake Monster to anybody about unless I happen unless I saw you that day.
0: Right, right. I was the same way. I was the kid who was into the genre movies that nobody else yeah. I didn't know anybody like that in yeah. school or anything. But you'd seek them out. But I yeah. had a, a more protective uh, oh yeah, uh, <laughs> childhood than you did. But ooh, there's about a, a decade that yeah, separates yeah. us yeah, yeah, from yeah. age. But the 70s, you've said many times that it's, to you, the most important and best mm-hmm. decade of movie making. What defines that? Was it the newfound freedom, the feeling that there are no controls, put on like texas chainsaw massacre you knew none of the people on the screen none of the filmmakers yeah. you didn't know what they were going to put in your face mm-hmm.
1: yeah it's like uh um that's very true but i do think though at the same time uh it's not the independent movies that make new hollywood i think it's the independent movies that helped new hollywood become new hollywood uh-huh. I, mean, I think it was um uh, In a in 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 a way something like the Wild Angels, but especially the Wild Angels. Yeah. Something like the Wild Angels and then the other AIP, Richard Rush, uh Jack Starrett uh, biker films or even the fanfare movies that came out in uh uh in the wake of that, they existed in a they existed in a more visceral world that was connected to the zeitgeist of the times in a way that the Hollywood movies of 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 uh, of uh, sixty six and sixty seven and sixty eight weren't. Right. All right, there was a real uh, uh, there was a progressiveness even to something like Three in the Attic or yeah. Wild in uh, Wild in the Streets yeah. that 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 uh, uh, that went further than a Hollywood movie would go. If 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 Warner Brothers were doing the script. Of of wild in the streets, it wouldn't end with Shirley, uh Shelley Winters being put in a concentration camp.
0: Right. All uh, right.
1: Where all the thirty that wouldn't be where it all ended. And then in the seventies, yeah, hey, it could even it could have a weird ironic ending, but nothing that terrible.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> You but know, it's. Uh, it, it seemed like as the seventies progressed, uh, the studios wanted to go deeper into the independent world because that's where the young audience was that
1: they could get. Well, you, you know? know, there's even a, oh, you can even make a case even comparing something, you know, we're like okay, even comparing something like uh uh three in the attic to, yeah. Bob uh, Bob and Carol Ted and Alice. Now Bob and Carol Ted Analysis is a better movie, right? In every way, shape, and form, frankly. And right. I but I like three in the attic. Yeah, but three in the attic. Goes forward with its menage a trois of the women, fucking uh, Paxton Quigley, until they can c- kill him <laughs> in a way that Bob and Carol Ted and Alice stops short of, right. of, of of the of the uh, uh, couple swapping. Right, it stops short of its own subject. Right,
0: they it becomes. But *Three the of- doesn't
1: it becomes timid
0: on the studio yeah, yeah yeah yeah.
1: If you know three in the attic doesn't I mean, you know, Mazurski does it in an artistic way, so it doesn't seem like a cop out. But right. nevertheless, it doesn't go through with with, with its, you know, uh, its, it's point of being. <laughs>
0: but directors began to be able to express Oh, no, but themselves. my point
1: though. My yeah. point though was those Zeitgeist movies helped nudge Hollywood. Right. Take Hollywood out of its uh fun for the entire family 60s, the Hal B. Wallace, yeah. uh, Ross Hunter, yeah. Hollywood world into the new Hollywood. It was AIP helped, kind of almost like a tugboat.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then in '74, you get The Exorcist from mm-hmm. Warner Brothers that you never would have seen in '64.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh no, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, to me that's what really makes new Hollywood is the idea that. Uh, you know, it was the idea that it's just the way it was for the beginning of Hollywood, from the very, very beginning of Hollywood, that if you do a famous book or a famous play that has controversial, mature themes or adult situations or uh, uh, adult subjects or s- sex or whatever or anything super unconventional. That if done in Hollywood, those elements would be taken out of it right. or they would be lessened or they would be changed. And, uh, you know, they, uh, that every everything that was like that would go through a <laughs> right aspect. All right. Uh, when uh, uh, nothing could be presented uh, with integrity it always had to be dealt with in a certain way. Well, by the seventy, for the most part, pretty much anything you could write could be done and done with integrity. Now it's up to you to pull it off, and it's up to you to do it right. But that was the case. Now, to me, that's what really, to me, that's what the old freedom was about. It wasn't, it wasn't the freedom to say fuck. Right. All right. It was the freedom that material could be done in an uncompromised way, unlike any other time in the history of Hollywood before. And except for some people, and in some cases, since,
0: right? Do you think in 1968, when the Motion Picture Association came out with the ratings, uh, the uh, GMRX mm-hmm. ratings, do you think that helped liberate filmmaking?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, it absolutely did. There was now, now there was no uh, excuse, right? Why they, you know, uh, uh, why they couldn't do it? Look, the the audience and the times were demanding it all right and then um and you know and and look the ratings look uh i've never had a problem with the ratings board but other filmmakers have run afoul of the uh, the ratings board and there was definitely been times where they there's been more hypocrisy in the way they've handed out their ratings as opposed to other times i lived in a really great time joan graves me and her got along like a house on fire uh uh uh, I, i i was lucky I could have yeah. grown up in the time of Richard Hefner instead I came of at the time of of Joan graves and uh, and it worked out uh fantastic. We had a lovely relationship. I really regretted when she uh stepped down as the head. But what the ratings board did that was so fantastic is it it stopped any jerk it stopped the sheriff of of any jerkwater county. Right. From suing your movie for, ups- for their local obscenity laws.
0: Great point.
1: And once that was taken off the table, then there was no really reason to hide anymore. Right.
0: And an X rating would go to uh, straightforward movies. And no, now yeah. it's synonymous with pornography, but yeah, yeah, yeah. at that time it just meant over 17.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah Midnight like, Cowboys. This thing. is adult.
0: Right. An adult movie. This exactly. is an adult movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, and all of that. Do you? An th- adult meant adult. It, it it didn't mean sex. All right? Right. Uh, right. It could it could mean sexual themes. Right. Like Midnight Cowboy was <laughs> yeah, rated. Yeah, Midnight X. Cowboy is a sexual theme. Yeah. Right.
0: Right. Do you think television also had an effect in that? Movies were competing for people passively staying home in front of a TV screen. Mm. And going out to the movies, you know you'll get something that you can't get on television.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, that's for sure. And, uh, I mean, it was always kind of an interesting thing um, in the 70s as far as um, you had a lot of re-releases. So movies played in theaters for a long time. One, 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 they played in theaters a long time. Right. That's that. All right. You know, I mean, a movie could play for six months to one degree or another. Right. You know? Uh, um, And something like My Fire Lady kind of just plays continuously for like (laughs) a year and a half. Yeah. Not two years, you know? (laughs) Uh, um, But then, uh, um, but the big hits, the ones that did well, they come out, they do well, and then usually two or three years later, there's a whole re-release of them.
0: Right, I mean, And they right. get a
1: whole brand new release.
0: Right. It wasn't just Disney doing that. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. Everybody. No,
1: it was a whole brand new release. And, uh, and, and like in the case, like for instance, in the case of the, I believe it was the uh, uh, the 75 re-release of, of the Sting. Oh, yeah. The Sting made almost as much money in the 75 re-release as it did in the 73 original release. Amazing. Yeah. And for instance, if they don't count this, but if they did count it... it uh, uh, if they counted it, the 1972 re release of Gone with the Wind right. would be in the top 10 highest grossing movies of the 70s if they counted it. Wow. Uh, but the thing is, though, but you know, but but you know, but okay, that's gone with the wind. I'm talking about you know uh, American Graffiti or right. the I saw the ex. I missed a lot of the stuff in '73 because uh, uh, I was in Tennessee. So I caught it up. I caught up with it during the re-releases in '74 and '75. I saw the re-release of Blazing Saddles.
0: Right. All right. right. In '74
1: yeah. or '75, I saw the re-release of uh, American Graffiti. I saw the re-release wow. of the of The Exorcist. Okay. So now those are the big ones. But then in the world of double features, okay, a movie like uh, Burt Reynolds Fuzz, a movie like George C. Scott's The Last Run, a movie like Jack Lemmon's uh, The War Between Men and Women, Uh, that would be uh, it did what it did when it came out, kind of came and went. But then it becomes uh, a secondary feature Hmm. Um, and it's a good secondary feature. And now. That's around for like three years. Right. It's not
0: a B movie. It's an A movie that is now. Yeah.
1: Well, it's a, yeah. Yeah. MGM has a okay. Okay. MGM wants. MGM has the A title. They want the B title. That way, they get the whole box office. Right. Right. MGM gives them an entire program. You know. And so those were easy ones. The Grissom Gang. That was the, the yeah. easy ones that popped up on the the second uh, second features for for like for years. Right. Right. My point about all that was, if it was a seventies movie. Like, say, I don't know, uh, The French Connection. Right. And by the way, talk about re-releases, okay? They release The French Connection. Then there's a re-release of The French Connection. Then there's a double feature re-release of The French Connection, The French Connection and Vanishing Point. Yeah. Right. Then there's another re-release, The French Connection and The Seven Ups. And then there's another <laughs> re-release, The French Connection and Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. All right? They're all Fox movies. They're all Fox car chase movies. Right. <laughs> and, uh 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 and uh, uh, But the thing is, by the time that The French Connection shows up on the ABC Sunday night movie, it's cut up so much. And this is before video. So you yeah. feel like, okay, it's lost. Yeah. Okay, now the movie's gone. Yeah, yeah. So they hung around a lot longer. But when they went to TV, it was as if they were gone for good. Yeah. You'll yeah. never be able to see... Because it's before video. You'll never be able to see... You know, uh, 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 the French Connection—the way it was when it came out.
0: Yeah. No, it was like 1977 when I got my first
1: Betamax, and I was working at Tower Records in Westwood, Uh and and it was like it. Actually, you would have got be able to got French Connection because Magnetic Home Video was the first company out, and then they made a deal with Fox. All the Fox. All the Fox shit was the first shit that ever came out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and and it just. It opened doors. That and Nostalgia Merchant with the Val yeah, movies yeah. Oh, yeah. and things oh, yeah. like that that it came out. Well, the, this
1: classic session is just filled with <laughs> Nostalgia Merchant. Yeah, stuff.
0: I was going to say, this. your whole podcast, which we'll get to in a bit, uh-huh. is all about those movies and watching them no, on Yeah, there's the, uh, Laurel and
1: Hardy. there's the Nostalgia Merchant, Laurel and Hardy section right yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: But it's so beautiful that you can hold a movie in your hands and yeah. watch it whenever you want.
1: God, my gosh, I felt that way when I was like, what I was for, I felt that way about having a ViewMaster yeah. <laughs> of the Mod Squad. Yes. I felt like I, to me, that was like having a print of the Mod Squad.
0: <laughs> right. Or I remember recording on a little audio tape recorder reel to reel a movie on television. So I did that
1: too. No, I did that too. I had a, I knew a guy, a video a customer, of video archives. He recorded, um, uh, "It's a Wonderful Life." Uh, all right, off of television, and they would drive around in his car and just listen to the wonderful life. And then when he gets wow. to the end with Zuzu's pedals, he, he's driving, he's crying. <laughs> all right, listening to the the, the last ten minutes. <laughs> what movie
0: has made you cry?
1: Oh, I'm easy to cry in movies. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 a sucker. I'm 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 really easy. Yeah, and what about making somebody cry from one of your movies? Well, that's all just individual, you know. People have told me it's happened before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 um, some female friends of mine actually said that they they got very weepy at the end of uh, Kill Bill all right, with yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, BB and the and the Bride. Yeah.
0: Well, for me. My favorite of your films, and the one that feels most personal to me, is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
1: Uh, I, uh, I, I grew up in LA. I feel the same way, and I feel that way for the exact same reason. <laughs> yeah,
0: I grew up in L.A. I was there in the '70s, and was a, a, it, it was it's so accurate, and so. Potent and so human, and you know, got to know Brad a little bit when I was producing Unbroken when he and Angie were together. uh And just his performance is so great, and the whole Rick Dalton character and everything. It is so thought, and your knowledge of period television, the westerns <laughs> of the time are so perfectly recreated. And tell me about how you went about that, because it's obviously really personal and yeah. obviously reflects a Southern California per- sensibility.
1: Uh, well, you know, it, it's, you know, it's it's it's, it's funny. Uh, um, there is a little bit like where you, as I started getting into my 50s, I started like, you know, wondering a little bit of like, hmm, almost like everything I told you before about that story about, oh, I got to fill my head full of shit so I know about all the, know about the movies like I'm supposed to. Um, somewhere in my 50s, with the way the world's, come with everybody hits things and it's all right there and you know you know uh uh everybody has access to imdb and yeah google this and looking up this and that and the other that you know what does personal knowledge uh, what does personal knowledge mean anymore all right. mm. and you know so obviously i'm not serious about this yeah uh uh but i'm like okay was I idiotic for spending all this, my life, filling my head full of this? Like, obviously the answer is no, all right, you know, uh, but it did make it seem a little bit more of like ever so slightly wasted effort, uh. Uh, you know, uh, that all this shit is just so easy and almost how people don't care about it anymore. So as I'm putting myself in the world of Rick Dalton, and creating the world of Rick Dalton and the world that Rick Dalton lives in and the people that Rick Dalton knows. And I know these type of actors. You know, I mean, there's the actors I personally know and all the sure. other ones I don't know that I know of. And um, and yeah, I am extremely well-versed about that time period, especially when it comes to the actors and especially when it comes to those, you know, you know when it comes to like the young career of a Charles Bronson or a James Coburn, you know, going from Laramie you know, to, a uh, 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 Bonanza, uh, to Wagon Train to, oh, okay. Now you got like nine days right. on this movie. And then uh, you're back again. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm just really, I've, I've been involved. I've, I'm really into that, you know, um, just watching a James Coburn Bonanza before you got here. Um, so there was this, and, and, and I know it, I, I truly know it. I mean, I know it like if, uh, 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 like if, if I had grown up a fisherman and now I'm going to write a movie about tuna fishing. Yeah. Well, my dad's a fisherman and I grew up on a fishing boat. Right. So that's I, I know what I'm talking about. Right. Well, I have that level of knowledge. Yeah. When it comes to this subject. And I'm like, I I might be the only guy my age that actually knows this much.
0: Yeah. I should know that much. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah.
1: This much about this time that's past my time. Right. The, the, you know, uh, and, and literally all the other people that I will be talking to who are from this time are like 80. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or 78 or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so there was this weird aspect that was like, holy shit. Have I spent my whole life putting this stuff in my head just to get me ready to write this script? <laughs> Which is reason enough. What well, it would be reason enough. It yeah. would be reason enough. It was like, wow. I just have been doing research on this just cuz I cuz it's what I care about and it's what I'm into and I i, I like being an expert on it but it's all, it's all finally it's all but but when I ask was there a reason for this here's the answer
0: yeah <laughs> and it's a great answer oh, thank you. and it's but it's also so obvious that it's personal to you not only because the film just is filled with passion and emotion and these performances and the storytelling. But also, you wrote a novelization that goes beyond (laughs) the end of the movie. (laughs) The novel is not a novelization because it's more than that. Mm -hmm. And that is so beautifully written and so elegiac in in a (laughs) lot of ways. But also, the Rick Dalton tribute... (laughs) The last two episodes of the first season
1: of the Video Archives podcast. It's kind of our first uh, radio play.
0: (laughs) It's amazing. And it is so thought out. I mean, how much time did you spend putting together all these cast lists and movies that you made up and TV series that all fit into the right networks and everything for the period? The verisimilitude of this is phenomenal.
1: Well, the the, the thing was. Is what I ended up doing during the pandemic, just, just for fun. I mean, you know, I spent half my time in, in Los Angeles and half my time with my family in uh, Israel. Yeah. And uh, and when I'm in Israel, when I'm not playing with the kids, I've got to have something to do. All right, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, I come up with a, a, I do my, I do my work writing here. I do kind of my fun hobby writing there.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: And uh, uh, and so, because I, I I have enough knowledge, I have enough information, I could do this. Uh, I thought, hmm. I mean, it's ridiculous how much I'm into Rick Dalton and into his career. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm kind of obsessed with it. All right. uh, uh, uh and I was like, you know what? I want to find out exactly what happened to him Yeah. after the movie. I mean, I want to know exactly, not there, uh, thereabouts. Right. I want to know exactly. And I don't want to have to come up with a story.
0: And you weren't done with him.
1: Yeah, yeah I just wasn't done with him. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wanted to know what happened with him, but I didn't want to have to come up with some cockamamie narrative right. that I had to stick. I didn't want to have to come up with a story. All right. And so I was like, whoa so what I did is I sat down in Israel and I wrote a book called The Films of Rick Dalton oh my god
0: is that where the interviews came from yes
1: okay. so I mean I'm embarrassed to tell you how strenuously researched this was <laughs> well, it's just something for myself I worked so hard researching this because the whole thing was okay oh, so, so I do his whole career that we already know about you know right. all the films we know of, but I me mean, but but mean but I mean, every single episodic television episode right. he did, right all right, and I didn't just yank shit out of my ass, okay. I okay so if he's going to be in a tombstone territory I I watch like five tombstone territories (laughs) until I find one that, oh no, I, Rick could have been in that. Oh, this is fantastic. Rick could have been in that one. So I just, I, the the director's name and you know, it's all listed. I describe a little bit of the storyline. Maybe Rick talks about it a little bit. Right. What it was like. And that, you know, uh, then then there's a few episodes. Like I make up an entire episode, you know, like for M squad. All right. The whole story with, (laughs) with Betty Davis and everything. So I make that up, but I went through his whole career and then, okay, but then it was like, OK, so then the incident happened and we go on from where the movie happened. And the same thing. I I, I went through all the movies he did and I went through uh, 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 the episodes he guested on. And once it got into a certain time period, especially like around uh, the 70s, then. Rick is kind of an amalgamation of about four different actors of that time period mm-hmm. but like eight or nine different actors of that time period like Will period, Hutchins and people yeah, of well, that, so fit, that Yeah, what could I wouldn't go far so far him but like but more like Gary Lockwood. Right,
0: right. Gotcha. All right.
1: You know. So if Gary Lockwood did an episode of 6 million dollar man, well that's something that Rick could have done too. Right. All right. If Ty Harden did an episode of David Cassidy Undercover, well, that's something that Rick could have done. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Uh, 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 if uh, yeah, yeah. So those are good. Those. If Monty Markham did, uh, did right. an episode of this show, that that's some, well, that's another thing that Rick could have done uh, on Dan August or something. You know. So that's something that that could have happened. Uh, uh, yeah. And so so the the point being is, I just did all this work, and I was very happy with it, but it was like. And I even talked to the publishing company about publishing it. Yeah. But then the first book came out, I go, okay, well, th- these books are actually doing pretty good. I don't think <laughs> I can come out with this bullshit. What the fuck is this, like insane lunacy? I want to read that uh, book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you would like it, and yeah. Todd McCarthy would like it, and people like yeah. that would like it. Everyone else would be, what the fuck is this shit? All right. So when it came time to do the uh, the last episode, and I got the Rick, I go, hey, here's something. I-, I now I well, I have all the information. Yeah. All right, so I don't need to tell everybody that I have the information. I just have the information, right. so I can talk about it with this base of knowledge. <laughs> and you have Gala and Roger in on it, and they did. They did. They, they did, a, they did an amazing it. job. You know, we watched all the stuff that we were supposed to watch. You know, uh, uh, uh it, it was, it was improvisational theater based on a ton of research right. that we all did. So we could talk freely about about it.
0: Well, it, it, it's so great, and the trajectory of his career and its ups and mostly downs that happen yeah. as well are so. Genuine, <laughs> yeah. and you
1: feel them, and you hurt for him, <laughs> yeah. and you celebrate with him. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, but it all ends pretty good. You know, he does the fireman. Yeah. All right. Yeah. He Which becomes, becomes, straight, becomes his big head. He becomes a straight. To, he becomes a straight to video action star. Yeah. <laughs> he's Dolph one. Yeah. He comes. Yeah. You know, he's, he's doing tons of Antonio Margariti uh, <laughs> yeah. and Sergio yeah. Santiago
0: uh, movies. Love that. <laughs> you know, the Hollywood star who's not doing so great anymore goes to Italy. It becomes. Well, a he big, ends up doing pretty good because
1: by the eighties because of his uh, uh, action his video action movie status uh, you know he becomes the top rate all right for a right. guest star right in the 80s all right you know because he's actually like a movie star now again you yeah know? Uh, uh, and and he's an action star so it, you know, it, it, it's described I can't remember if it's on the episode or not but it's described that uh, uh, you know he talks about it and you go so when it comes to that top rate for a a, a, a star guesting on an on episodic television, he goes, well, Rick Dalton would say, well, in, in the 60s, that was the Robert Culp rate. And that was the Darren McGavin rate. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, no. no. In the 60s, that was the Robert Culp rate. Right. In the 70s, that was the Darren McGavin rate. Yeah. In the 80s, that was the David Carradine rate. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's the Rick Dalton raid. <laughs> yes. But what... Yeah, so, so when he does a Fall Guy, you yeah. know, it, it, he gets he, the he, he's gets paid, paid the highest. He's paid the highest that anyone gets paid. For, you right. know, when he does a chips, he gets paid the highest. <laughs> it's <laughs> so does, great. Yeah, when he does a masquerade. <laughs>
0: yeah. But the shows are the real shows and the yeah. cast, yeah. and he fits
1: perfectly he fits.
0: into these things. If John you...
1: Saxon fits in there, so does Rick. <laughs> yeah. yeah I,
0: have, uh... <laughs> I mean, you've created this character who is who represents that time, that time period that spans decades yeah. in such a complete way that it's one of the most complete film characters I know of because he goes way beyond his presence in that movie.
1: I think you're... Thank you for saying that, by the way. And this is a weird thing for, to say to somebody who uh, um, just paid me a great compliment. I completely agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> My only caveat for such egotism is I think it's really... It only works for people like me and you. Everybody else, what me. the fuck? It's, it's fucking Greek. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's. But for us, yes, you're a hundred percent right. But the
0: the great news is the movie was such a big hit for you. Yeah. You know and. And fantastic. It, it was number nine out of 10 movies. You're, you've committed to making 10 movies. You're 60 now. And I know you're going to do the movie critic. We don't need to get into what it's going to be. We don't want to get into it. <laughs> I don't want to know what it's going to be before I see it. But uh, tell me about how you actually planned th- your career in such a way. Was it always a plan to make 10? Or as you went to five, six, seven, go, maybe 10 is the number.
1: Oh, wow. You know, it's funny because I'm sure there's interviews with me out there, like from 92 and 93, when I came out, where I'm probably preaching the opposite ends of the spectrum <laughs> and talking about being like Fassbender.
0: <laughs> Right.
1: where it's like, big movie. Mini series, sixteen millimeter movie that I do in, in one week. <laughs> right. Uh, just want to keep making movies. Yeah, big ones, low ones, this yeah. one, that one. Yeah, just you know, hope, hope, and stuff. A couple of movies I financed myself. You know, you know, uh uh, 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 uh. I I think that was probably where I was probably thinking of way back when. Um. Uh. But then you know. Uh. That ended up not working out, and then a certain kind of pattern uh, 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 developed partly because I'm a writer, right? You know, it would be a completely different career if, uh, if I was at the mercies of just looking for material, right. right. That I could take and, 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 and put my stamp on and make my own, whether that material is whatever scripts that are available or a book material that I adapt, every, every, the whole career would be different. Who knows? And, right. And if you if you don't love my voice, you could actually think that that might have been a better career, and and it, well, it might have been a more varied career. All right, because right. if I was forced to uh, uh, take other writers' uh, imagination, other writers, well, like uh, Jackie
0: Brown was the one time you'd yes, use exactly. a, a character from a novel,
1: but more about the idea about the fact that like everything has to you know. since I write my own stuff, everything starts from the from the uh, the blank page. Everything starts from square one for me. So. If I'm writing the whole damn thing, then then you know, square one is going to be something that I'm drawn to or interested in. It's probably not a surprise, right? That I'm right. drawn to it. But if I was, a, you know, but if I was more of a director who was, you know, like a Spielberg who is more dependent on material, whether it be book, a book, or whether it be scripts that are around and everything, then. Yeah, I would probably be drawn to uh, a different genre than I would ever contemplate on my own.
0: (laughs) Right. But there's no question in seeing one of your films that it's one of your films. It can be a World War II movie. It can be 1970s Hollywood. um, It can Mm -hmm. be... Uh, Django mm-hmm. but there there is no question about the personality of the filmmaker behind it and the creation of it. It is so much reflective of you in such
1: a unique way well, okay, when you say that though, okay, is that is would you say seventy five percent of that is the is the sense of humor
0: yeah, I would say it's it's a sense of, well, not just a sense of humor but an energy uh-huh, uh-huh. and and a there's a smart-ass quality to a certain degree, but mm-hmm. there's also a sense of propulsion mm-hmm. behind everything that you make, whether it's Jackie Brown or whether it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or whether it's Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. There's still this personality. The dialogue is really crisp and smart and creative but feels genuine coming out of a person's mouth. Oh, thanks. And But you, more than almost any other filmmaker I can think of, You look at one of your movies and you say, I know who this filmmaker is.
1: Oh, wow. Well, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying about, like you're saying a sense of propulsion, because I mean, one of the things that people, uh, I'll I'll talk about with people about my writing process is, it took me a while to kind of figure this out, um, is I would spend all this time kind of like mapping out what I think the story is going to be before I officially start writing it. Really?
0: You put that on paper, your yeah, notes yeah, yeah, and Yeah,
1: more or less. Never, not like a, a, a not like a 30-page outline or anything like right. that. More like a diagram.
0: Uh-huh. Then
1: I'll go to this, and then I'll go to this, and then I'll go to this, and then there'll be the scene with the old lady, and, you know, <laughs> and then it'll all, all end up to Bulldog Drummond, you know, capturing <laughs> right. the guy with the death ray. Uh, you Yeah. Know, uh, 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 um. And so I kind of work it all out. And 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 the reality is, is as I'm writing the script, more or less, and it is a more or less situation, more or less, I pretty much follow that diagram that I have, that more like almost like a cable, table of contents. Right, right. right. Moments. I kind of follow that pretty good until I get to the middle mm. of the screenplay. And... See, by the time I get to the middle of the screenplay, now I know these characters in such a profound way that I would could never know them before I started writing. Right. You have to commit. Yeah. It to writing them to get to know them that well. I agree. All right, and so, so I, I kind of needed that. I kind of needed that set of instructions by the mid mid movie, then mid story. I take my hand, hands off the handlebars.
0: Right, you turn your back,
1: and I let the characters.
0: Yeah, I let yeah. the
1: characters take it. Now that's not quite as foolhardy as maybe it might sound, because I'm dealing in genre. Yeah, yeah. All right, it's like I'm. I, the, the idea isn't to just isn't to obliterate. Uh, my idea is always to 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 uh, 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 to go beyond the genre. Right. All right. You know, but not to obliterate it. Right. right. So, okay. So do I exactly know how Kill Bill is going to end? Well, exactly? No, I don't. But I'm pretty sure she's going to kill Bill. <laughs> now, how she does it and exactly the mood and, and the mood when she does it and how we'll feel about it when she does it, that is to be determined. Right. Right. All right, yeah. but, but 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 the whole point was part of that propulsion is the fact that I am while I'm trying to fuck around with genre as much as I can, I'm also kind of playing by the rhythms of it. Right. And characters
0: guide you when you're writing.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're like, yeah, yeah. It's like, we're going to find out what happens with Django and everything. But it's going to end in some sort of a big shootout. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking Django. <laughs> it's a fucking spaghetti western. How else do you think it's going to end? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's
0: good. Well, what is your process as opposed to writing, the, the directing process? Do you plan it out? Do you storyboard? Do you shot list? Um, do you have the... You know, working on the budgets that you do, you have time to rehearse that a lot of people don't get into. Yeah, I give a yeah. I
1: usually have a a, a two week rehearsal. Uh-huh. You know, uh huh. Yeah. Um. I don't use it that much, but at some point in pre production, I sit down with the script and I write. I, I I don't draw, so I don't do storyboards, but I do a shot list for every scene.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this sort of like it's like now I'm thinking about it visually and it's the first time I've th- been thinking about it visually. And um, now and I'll do the whole film. So this is me now like like writing it all over again, but just from a visual point of view. And. Uh, OK, so now if there's a scene where they're a normal scene. Two people talking in a, in a real estate office. All right. So in this instance, I will write out how I will shoot that. Uh-huh. But unless I come up with something really amazing, that's not what I'm going to, I'm not going to ever look at this again when it comes time to, to shoot the movie. Right,
0: you shoot it in advance in your head and then when you're yeah. there, you know what you Well,
1: you're it's doing. sort of me just making it a point of making it all visual. Now, where it really comes into play with anything really special I want to do. Oh, maybe I want to do this all in one shot. Right. Or maybe I want to do this in, in, in some way that, like, it's going to require some equipment. Right. You know, or it's like, oh, wow, that's a lot of setups for this. But I think it kind of works that way. But I'm like, I'm, I might need a, a couple more days, yeah. all right, to get all the setups that I uh, that I need done with this. So what it is is it points out the scenes that I might make a bigger deal out of. Right. All right. So that helps me with there. But the thing is when it comes to but but when I'm actually shooting the movie when it comes to just the, a regular scene and even big deal scenes. Yeah. Um I show up on the set that morning, say it's Thursday. I show up on the set. Uh uh the uh we send the crew away and then I just rehearse with the actors. And I rehearse and rehearse and then uh and then I figure it out.
0: Have you rehearsed with them before?
1: Uh, well, we might sometimes. Yes, yeah, sometimes Read through, no. or yeah. Well, no. Well, there'll be a two-week rehearsal, but now we're, maybe we're three months into the shoot. Right. All right. So we did that then, and maybe we'll do it again now. But now it's now it's today. And how do we feel about it today? Mm-hmm. And so then the thing about it is, uh, uh, we nail the scene. We, we we you know we we get we get the blocking we want. This is what we're going to do. Then I bring in the keys and we show them the scene. Right. They watch the scene, then they ask any questions we they, we have then we send the actors off to makeup. Then 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 I sit down. Now I know what I'm going to do. Then I sit down and then I write my shot list for the day.
0: Ah, uh-huh, interesting.
1: And then I write the shot list, I give it to the first AD. He he uh, uh, xeroxes it and now that's what we're then doing. Then you
0: start to work.
1: I mean, sorry xing them off
0: yeah uh, amazing i think one of the great bold moves was shooting hateful eight in 70 millimeter <laughs> yeah. you know the, these big beautiful s- shots of the snow yeah. and everything and then the whole thing takes place inside yeah. a station <laughs> yeah. but it's still 70 millimeter and it's it's beautiful
1: why well you know it's like uh uh it cracks me up because there was so many people taking swipes at me, all right? Uh, uh, you know, these amateur critics. Like, well, he goes to shoot 70 millimeter and he sticks it all in a cabin. <laughs> and it just makes me think about how... How conventional that kind of comment is, as if yeah. 70 millimeter is only meant to shoot horizons, or only yeah. meant to shoot mountains, uh, mountainscapes, or only meant to shoot uh, babbling brooks and, yeah. and 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 you know basically uh, travel logs. Yeah. All right? <laughs> uh, but actually, 70 millimeter is meant for close-ups. Right. Right. I mean, Sam Jackson's face in those close-ups in the is just oh. is really amazing.
0: Where well, you see every pore. Yeah. yeah. It, it's really good. Well, what about critics? You, you pay attention to them. You used to cut out uh, yeah, yeah. reviews, not of your own movies, but of other mm-hmm. movies and the like. Uh, what is their importance to you as a filmmaker? Uh,
1: well, it's the word of the day. Now, yeah. the word of the day can be wrong, all right, but yeah. it, it's it's the, it's it's the word of the day, uh, and. Um, no, I'm always really uh, look, I'm al- I'm always can't wait to uh, read what the critics say, uh, uh, and and so look, I'm really happy. I I'm always happy with my movie. Yeah. You know, so if I did a movie that I was really really happy with, and then everybody really took it the wrong way, then I then I, I might I might feel more burned about the situation. Yeah. But it, but it really normally is like there's the people who really really like what I do. Yeah, and then there's the people who really, really don't like what I do, and, and and then I hear what they have to say about this one, and I hear what this group has to say about that one, and then there's uh, there's a group in the middle that can go this way or that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, depending on the movie. But you know, uh, I, I, I'm usually shaking my fist in the air at the ones that don't like me, and made it a practice <laughs> of not liking me, hearing what they have to say. But I but I need to listen to it.
0: Yeah. Well, you're making work for public consumption you have to have the ride of a, uh, the hide of a rhinoceros yeah, 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 yeah. but <laughs> y- you're going to get the slings and arrows regardless there's going to be people who love and don't love your work yeah. uh, especially when you have such a strong cinematic personality as mm-hmm. you and and I love your attitude toward criticism in your book, Cinema Speculations, because you become a film critic in that book, Yeah. Uh-huh. but it's usually a cheerleading film critic.
1: Well, I try not to do that that much. I mean, that that's one of the things that actually people are, I mean, it's interesting because I didn't put a forward in the book. Mm hmm which is kind of strange for a cinema book. I mean, people could spend two years writing the book and almost like six months writing the forward. All right. Yeah. Right, because right. it's usually like, okay, this is the mission statement of the book. Yeah. And, uh, and so my first chapter was going to be the forward, but then it got past that until it became a chapter onto its own. So I thought, well, but it, this kind of does a good job of setting up the book. Well, it does do a good job of setting up the book. But it kind of doesn't do a good job of setting up where I'm coming from on it a little bit. I see. All right. And so and I've read a lot of confusion since then because it is – if a director is going to write about 12 movies or 15 movies, then kind of the way it almost is set up from the way we've had it in the past, it's probably going to be 12 or 15 movies that they really love. Right, right. 12 or 15 movies that are a real big deal to them. That's not necessarily the case with this book. (laughs) No, no,
0: no. There there are definitely movies that you don't love that you talk about. in.
1: And then, you know, it's more, so this is not, let me pick 15 movies and turn you on to them, you know. Uh, No, I'm not coming from that. That's easy. I'm not coming from that point of view. I'm coming from, here's our 15 movies or 12 movies, however many it is. Here's our 15 movies that I think I have something interesting to say about. Yeah. I think that there's a, a, th- 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 there's an interesting conversation here, and I think I have something interesting to say. And usually, what I have to say isn't that interesting unless there's some negativity involved in it. Mm-hmm. I I want the kind of the push and the pull of I like this and I don't like that. This works. This doesn't work. I but mean, you
0: also say why, and I, not well, just I as a filmmaker. To. I do but, try to. Yeah. Yeah. As as a film watcher, as much as a mm-hmm. filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. And. And how it affects you personally, and how, the
1: circumstances
0: under which you saw it, you know. Yeah, well,
1: that ends up becoming a thing, and then I didn't know that that was going to be such a thing at the beginning.
0: Right. And then it
1: became well, no, that's almost almost the point of everything. Now.
0: Right. Well, your your mother's boyfriend Reggie, <laughs> yeah, yeah, who was black, brought you into the world of black exploitation films in a way that another white kid might not <laughs> have been able to, to say the and, least. Yeah. And it's become a. <laughs> But it's become a big part of your voice as a filmmaker, it too. It has, it has. And so you'll get criticism for taking on black characters and dialogue and the like. Mm. But you came from that. That yeah, was a yeah. part of your life. <laughs> Reggie introduced you to something really important in your filmmaking canon.
1: Yeah, no, it was like a... a, a um. It was actually interesting in writing it because... Uh, um. When I'm talking about me, and me is like 1972, so I guess, what is that, the nine-year-old me? I guess it is. Okay, you know, uh, uh, um, I'm guessing on that right now. Uh, So there's me in the audience, and then there's the black audience that's around me. Right. And so I'm writing it, and so there's me, and that's separate. Then there's the black audience. That's and that's its own thing, but then there's the audience, and that's a we. Yeah, yeah. I was the only white person there, but as an audience, it was a we.
0: Yeah, you were part of it. We
1: responded to this. Yeah. We laughed at this. I wasn't separate from them. Right, right. All right. We responded to this. We cheered at this. We laughed at this.
0: That's a really important point. Yeah. Yeah, but you're part of the group. Mm-hmm. You weren't the white kid alone.
1: No, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, uh... I even yelled, that "Suck my dick. <laughs> <laughs> the bus is coming. Yeah.
0: Now, there's no greater love than owning movie theaters. Mo- yeah. No greater movie love. And yeah. you now own two movie theaters here in Los Angeles. You just opened up the Vista Theater, which yes. was built in the 20s originally. Mm. This fantastic neighborhood house that had style to burn. Yeah. So tell me about that. That ownership, that curatorship of of two movie theaters that only show thirty five mm or <laughs> yeah. sixteen mm yeah. uh-huh. the the purity of your love for cinema as celluloid.
1: Well, I, 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 uh, uh, I things started to, once I started uh, uh, it all started like in the late nineties when I started my own sixteen millimeter collection, and it was me and Bob Morowski.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, he had already started it.
1: Bob Morowski and Sage Stallone.
0: At, at, right they had their own company
1: yeah, yeah. and they started the 60 and then bob got me into it and there was this guy budget uh, uh, budget uh, uh, budget rentals mm-hmm. all right that uh, uh he was selling off his 16 stuff and uh and so that was it and then then i started buying 35 millimeter prints from collectors and then um pretty quickly on i realized that i, I was kind of a. uh 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 a frustrated exhibitor. Ah. You'll meet actors, all right, that uh, that you're working with who are like frustrated ADs. Right. They know how this set should be run. <laughs> <laughs> they know when they should be calling people to the set and when they shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this guy's not doing it right. <laughs> okay, well, consequently, filmmakers can be uh, 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 frustrated exhibitors too. And, um, and I was able to first scratch that itch by going to uh, Austin and through uh, the Austin Film Society via Rick Linklater I was able to do these little QT Film Fest where I bring my prints up and show oh, them nice! and then I started doing stuff with the New Beverly then I ended up buying the New Beverly and then I you know I, I programmed uh, the New Beverly schedules once I took it over uh, for like the first six years wow Yeah, you know, and then uh, um, uh, but I was really looking forward to the idea of if Uh, If I could get the Vista, because I'd like the idea of having a jewel box theater. Yeah. You know, beautiful single house, a a total jewel box where uh, uh, if you make a print, when we have 70 millimeter there, but if you make it, you know, if, if a new film makes a print, we can show it there. If there are no new movies coming out with a a film print, then we'll show high-end revivals. Right, right. So part of the fun of the New Beverly is... We show all kinds of prints. That's almost part of the fun of it. Absolutely,
0: right. yeah. absolutely.
1: Right. But then, you know, but uh, um, uh, uh, you know, but for the most part, at least for the main engagements, maybe midnight shows will be a little different. But for the main engagements, it's like the top of the top. Right. You right. know, and it's not, and, and and it's not a revival house schedule per se. I mean, if we have like a a seventy millimeter festival or an IB Technicolor festival, that might be different. But for the most part, it's like revivals that can hold a week. Mm-hmm. or at least four days. Right, right, right. Not the one-day, two-day
0: thing. Right, so it'd be two movies in a week. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, one of the great points of pride of my life was when my first movie, Critters 2, played at the New Bev yeah. <laughs> to a sold-out <laughs> crowd. It was amazing. But, but uh, just want to talk uh, briefly about your beginnings of studying acting, you mm-hmm. know, the, the Torrance Community yeah. Theater and the like. But also... You played an Elvis impersonator on The Golden Girls.
1: Yeah, that was like that was the only official that was the only film acting job I ever got. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you cast yourself in Reservoir Dogs, and you're perfect in it. And and you've done it in in so many other things. Is it still something you really enjoy doing?
1: No, I'm kind of over it now. Yeah, yeah, I'm. really... You did it. Yeah, yeah, I'm really. I'm I'm really over it now. I mean, insofar as I mean. Um, maybe now that i'm over it if if a right kind of role came along that i actually thought was a real role and i, I would be uh, uh 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 that would be a challenge yeah i i'm i I'm, I'm i might be uh 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 that would be the only thing that would make me think about it again yeah
0: i mean uh, you were even on broadway and wait until Dark, yeah yeah which is but, that's...
1: but I, now it's sort of like now though it's like literally uh uh I work my ass off on my movies. All right, you know, so... If it's not my movie, it's really not worth hanging out on a set for fucking three weeks. All right, right or waiting four for weeks. your call. Yeah, yeah I, you know. Oh no! Know. Now they're fucking faxing me these fucking call sheets and this, all this papers clogging up my house. Now I have to learn all these fucking lines. And I have to get up in the fucking morning. You know. Uh, uh, yeah. When it's my movie, uh, okay. Uh, those are all the drags, all right, yeah. about making a movie, all right? But when it's my movie, it's fine, all right? And fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I don't know if it's worth it for somebody else's movie. <laughs> there was a time, but I think that time has passed.
0: Well, Quentin, your, your passion for genre films and films of all kinds, uh, and your enthusiasm is is so catching. That and and it's okay. such a great opportunity to sit with you and talk with you well, about May, these May, things. Look,
1: you you're the guy that leads by enthusiasm. I mean, like I'm I remember. I mean, the first time I heard your name was way before you ever directed anything because they talked about you as the friendly friendly publicist at Universal, all right, in Fangoria. <laughs> yeah. When you yeah. were a publicist, you were a, a character in Fangoria. <laughs> and I, Fangoria yeah. was, that was my movie magazine. Yeah, it no. was an American cinematographer. It was, yeah. I, I, I I re- oh, as you can see, there's a bunch of film comments there. I read film comment. I read American film. I re- uh, 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 I I read uh, what was it? Uh, Movie Tone News. Oh, uh, yeah. uh, you know, and films and filmmaking, and and, uh, and films in review. I read all that. But but like, but when I was a young, but at that age, my favorite film magazine was Fangoria. Yeah,
0: and I love that you watched the Z Channel when I first did those shows. Absolutely, yeah. It was great. But Mm -hmm. I so appreciate you spending the time with us here and being our final one-on-one interview guest. And
1: just thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks thanks for having me on. It was a great conversation. I had a good time, mate.
0: Me too. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us
1: wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.